Welcome to the Brookings Cafeteria, the podcast about ideas and the experts who have them. I'm Fred Dews. Few laws have had such far-reaching impact as Title IX of the Education Amendments of 1972, intended to give girls and women greater access to sports programs and other courses of study in schools and colleges. The law has since been used by judges and agencies to expand a wide range of anti-discrimination policies. Most recently, the Obama administration's 2016 mandates on sexual harassment and transgender rights. On today's show, Brookings Press Director Bill Finan talks with Shep Melnick, author of the new book, The Transformation of Title IX, Regulating Gender Equality in Education. Melnick is a professor of American politics at Boston College. Also on today's show, David Wessel looks at President Trump's trade policies. You can follow the Brookings Podcast Network on Twitter, at Policy Podcasts, to get the latest information about all of our shows. First up, David Wessel. I'm David Wessel, and this is my economic update. Today's question is a simple one. Will Donald Trump's trade war trigger a recession? It sounds like a yes or no question, but let me warn you at the outset, it's not. For now, the U.S. economy is doing pretty well. The best guesses are that the economy grew at an annual rate of better than 4% in the second quarter, boosted perhaps by the big tax cut that President Trump signed. Businesses finally seem to be willing to invest. Unemployment is at a 17-year low, though that only counts people who say they're looking for work, and there's still a large number of workers on the sidelines. Employers have been stubbornly reluctant to raise wages, but with so many of them complaining of worker shortages these days, history suggests that wage increases are likely to follow. But a recession is inevitable. The U.S. economy has been growing without interruption for nine years now. Only once before in the 90s have we gone so long without a recession. Economists say, accurately, that economic expansions don't die of old age, but they don't last forever either. So could a trade war be the trigger for the next recession? Well, yes, it could. But whether it will is a harder question, because the answer depends on what Trump will really do, as opposed to what he says, what our trading partners will do in response, and what businesses and investors around the world will do in response to that. It's not hard to sketch out the worst-case scenario. The president, who incorrectly sees trade as a zero-sum game and trade deficits as the nation's bottom line, sides with the trade hawks in his administration. He imposes tariffs on all sorts of imports from China, Europe, Mexico, Canada, and so on. The Chinese, the Europeans, the Mexicans, the Canadians respond with tariffs of their own and with other measures aimed at punishing the U.S. economy. The Chinese, for instance, might let their currency depreciate, or they might harass U.S. multinationals doing business in China more than they already do. U.S. farmers and other exporters suffer. Prices in the U.S. rise. Global supply chains are disrupted, and shortages of parts and hot goods proliferate. The stock market tanks. Fighting the recession proves difficult because the federal debt is already large by historic standards, so Congress won't cut taxes or increase spending as it should, and the Fed doesn't have much room to cut interest rates. Faced with weak demand at home, businesses cut back. Given the size of markets outside the United States, big multinationals shift even more production overseas. Harley-Davidson turns out to be just the beginning. The rules-based trading system the U.S. helped create after World War II is irreparably damaged, and the distrust engendered by the tit-for-tat tariffs makes it hard for leaders of the world's big economies to assemble a replacement or to cooperate on other problems of global consequence. Or maybe not. 
consider a couple of other scenarios. One is that the U.S. imposes a few tariffs and our trading partners respond in kind. A few industries get hurt hard, but the momentum of the global economy largely offsets the ill effects, and the grown-ups, if there are any, in Washington, Beijing, Brussels, Ottawa, and Mexico City understand the risk, and they don't let this get out of hand. Goldman Sachs economists recently put it this way in a note. The proposed U.S. tariffs and their expected retaliation pose a modest macro risk to our optimistic outlook for the world economy. Though they did add, these risks could rise sharply if the trade war escalates and financial conditions tighten in response. Another possibility is that President Trump backs off. He's made his point, he's got his headlines, but he realizes his trade policy risks undoing whatever economic benefits his tax cuts may deliver. His recent decision to reject proposals to impose harsh restrictions on Chinese investment in the U.S. suggests that the trade hawks in the White House have not completely won the internal battles. President Trump is acutely sensitive to his base, and the base clearly loves his rhetoric on immigration and on trade. But rightly or wrongly, people tend to blame the president when the economy weakens. The president will try and blame others, of course, but he must know that disrupting the expansion is not in his political interest, even if he believes his trade tactics are in the long-run interest in the country. Maybe a few Fox News headlines are all it takes to get him to back off. Now, I'm really reluctant to put odds on these scenarios. I'm really not sure what's going to happen. What frightens me, though, is that we cannot rule out the worst-case scenario. And now, on with the interview about Title IX. Here are Bill Finan and Shep Melnick. Thanks, Fred and Shep. Good to see you. Good to see you. Title IX, what in a nutshell is it? The interesting thing about Title IX is how it's changed over time. The law itself is really simple. It just says that any institution that receives federal funding, any educational institution, cannot discriminate on the basis of sex. Who could disagree with that? Right. Very simple. The interesting thing about regulation that has evolved under it, and the main thesis of my book, is that the major purpose of Title IX in 1972 was to open the doors of educational opportunity for women. And there were many barriers facing women at that time. There was really quite gross discrimination against women faculty members. Many schools did not allow women to enter either a college or a program or a graduate program. So there was a lot of very overt discrimination. And that was the purpose of the law was to the extent that this activity is federally funded, the doors of opportunity had to be open to women. And in the book, you mentioned some of the major Ivy League universities mm -hmm. where women were not allowed in, which right. seems phenomenally backward now, 40-some years on. And you also mentioned the shifts in the number of women who've become college graduates, too. It's almost reversed what it was in 1972 in terms of male-female. Right. It has reversed. In 1972, 57% of college graduates were men, 43% women. Now it's exactly the opposite. And women are actually climbing close to 60% of college students. They receive more PhDs than men, believe it or not. And even in the sciences, if you count biology, they're close to parity in the professional schools. So it's a really remarkable change. 
One thing I should point out is that the Ivy League schools, the ones that were single sex, most of them, were not required by Title IX to allow women to enter because undergraduate schools that are private were exempted. But all of them did. And the pressures were really so powerful, the cultural pressures. And that's made a tremendous difference in those schools. I can say since I went to Harvard when it was four to one uh, (laughs) male, um, it is a much better place now. So the simple prohibition that Title IX had in place that sex discrimination mm-hmm. would not happen in educational facilities. That simple prohibition has grown to encompass a lot of issues that have been in the headlines recently, from women in college athletics and sexual harassment to transgender students' use of sex-segregated facilities. Why is it so wide-ranging? Right. What happened? That, that is the most interesting question. I could add to that, now dress codes are going to be the new frontier of Title IX. How did that happen? That, in a nutshell, is what I try to show in the book. And my argument is that this original purpose of opening the doors of educational opportunity to women was transformed into an effort to try to undo all types of sexual stereotypes, whether it would be sexual stereotypes about women's interest in athletics, or it would be relations between men and women in very private settings of courting and sexual relationships, or whether it be our understanding of what it means to be male or female, which is the transgender issue. So the regulation took on this much more extensive and ambitious effort to try to change the way not just students and faculty and administrators, but the public at large thinks about a wide variety of matters relating to sex. It's also now fully at the center of the culture wars polarizing this country. Why has that happened? Well, as soon as you start talking about sexual stereotypes and what we mean by sex and what are proper sexual relations, then you're into an area that is not consensual, as is opening doors of opportunity for women, but is highly conflictual. And if my book can do anything, I hope it is to convince people that we can back away from getting into this cultural warfare Mm -hmm. and to try to come to a more centrist, moderate position on some of these issues. And I'd like to argue that having read the book, you do make that point very well. One of the points you make in the book, too, is that gender segregation and racial discrimination are often equated, and they shouldn't be. The differences are huge and obvious, you write. What are those differences? Right. The Title IX was based on Title VI of the Civil Rights Act, which involved race. And in many areas of the law, we have said Sex is like race. With Title VII of the civil rights law that bans discrimination in employment, we added the word sex to the word race. So what are some of the differences? Well, it's most apparent in the area of athletics where we don't say men and women can compete on a level playing field on the same teams. And if the guys can jump higher and run faster and block harder, then they should get all of the positions. That seems patently unfair to women. And so these physical differences between men and women sometimes, not in most aspects of education, but sometimes do become important. And the other area in which we have allowed some types of segregation on sex is in areas involving privacy, bathrooms, showers, dorm rooms. We cringe or revolted by the idea of having signs over bathrooms that say black and white. But we accept, usually, having male and female for matters of privacy. So these physical differences sometimes are important. 
Right, large difference. A central concern of the book, and this is to go back to what we began with, is the distance between what the legislators thought they were voting for in 1972 and what Title IX has become. You write that certainly no one who voted for Title IX in 1972 thought that the Office of Civil Rights would eventually write rules allowing students to choose for themselves whether to be treated as male or female. That distance has become the province of what you call the civil rights state. What is a civil rights state? We are very comfortable talking about the welfare state which is a collection of the wide variety of welfare programs, both contributory like Social Security and means-tested like food stamps. And those people who have studied the welfare state say, well, there's something distinctive about the American welfare state as opposed to the European welfare state when we look at it as a whole. So what I've tried to do is say, let's look at this very extensive set of civil rights laws, having race, disability, gender, age, and language and say, what is the characteristic of these sets of programs that are different from other programs and different from the way the European countries handle this? And one of the key features of the civil rights state that I've tried to highlight is what I call court agency leapfrogging, mm-hmm. which is that courts and agencies both have a big role in developing regulations in this area. And what has happened is that an agency will take a small step and the court will build on that. The agency will go further than that. And you get this constant expansion without people really thinking about what they are doing that's new. And one of the things that bothers me is because they all have an interest in saying we're not doing anything new. That means they don't have to have opportunities for public participation. They don't have to do the type of analysis that most regulatory agencies do to consider costs and alternatives. So the process, I think, has been particularly opaque. And the one reason we got so far from the original understanding was that we had this process in which people really were not being frank and sometimes not understanding themselves how far we were moving away from that original intent. The question I want to ask you is that part of the problem, this is a point you make early on, is that Title IX speaks in grand phrases with uncertain meaning. And so there's been a lot of attempt to interpret those grand phrases into granular meaning, I guess. And that's what we're seeing here. Mm -hmm. Right. I mean, that's true of many forms of regulation. I think it's extreme here. And one of the reasons that we have administrative procedures set up by the Administrative Procedure Act of 1946 is when we give agencies the ability to give more explicit meaning to these broad phrases, we expect them to go through a participatory open process. And that, I think, is what is particularly lacking in this area of the law. Yeah, you contrast, I think this is what you're calling social regulation with what we know as economic regulation. Can you broadly describe the differences between the two? Because it's pretty obvious in the book how different they are. Sure. Economic regulation is primarily regulation of business firms to deal with what economists call market failures, imperfect competition, externalities, monopoly power. And usually that means you're kind of setting prices for goods and services or setting limits of pollution or other forms of externalities. And I think we have some pretty good economic models of how to deal with some of these issues. Mm -hmm. The social issues are much more questions of what do we mean by morality? What do we mean by justice? And that is much harder to quantify and it involves many more political passions Mm -hmm. than even environmental policy. And one thing I might point out since we're talking about the contrast between these areas, Scott Pruitt is trying to change a lot of things at EPA. 
Mm-hmm. He has to face the problem that most of those rules are in, set in place by notice, notice and comment rulemaking, and he can't undo them unless he goes through the same process. And that rulemaking process is? That rulemaking process is, number one, you have to explain your proposal in some detail. You have to open that up for comments from the public. Then you have to respond to all of what the court calls significant comments. It's really hard to know what is insignificant, so agencies usually make sure they respond to everything. And to make explicit what information you're basing it on, what your argument is, how you get from point A to point B, and how you deal with the criticisms of it. Mm -hmm. Now, that can be a very time-consuming process, but it's also highly participatory and it makes people think about what they're doing and what the alternatives are. And once you do that, you can only undo the regulation by going through the similar process, which has really slowed up for better or for worse, I think probably for better, the process at EPA. But at the Office for Civil Rights and Department of Education, since they don't go through that process in the first place, they can undo it in a similarly unilateral way, which is what Secretary DeVos has done with the transgender and sexual harassment. You begin the book by looking at three case studies that show how Title IX has become the province of what you call the civil rights state. There's an event at Quinnipiac mm-hmm. and a case at Harvard Law and then a public school in Illinois. Can you just briefly describe those three? The Quinnipiac case involved athletics. Mm-hmm. And the claim there was that they had not provided equal athletic opportunity to women students. And I said there were two parts of the controversy. One was that Quinnipiac kind of fudged the numbers. And I don't think there's any polite way of saying that. And that happens a lot. But beyond that, the argument was that they were not providing varsity athletic opportunities that were proportional to the number of women in the school. So the regulation right now is that what you need to aim for is the number of varsity athletes that are male and female should reflect the proportion of male and female undergraduates. And since at most schools now, women are getting close to 60% of the undergraduate body, the argument is that varsity athletes should be at that level. Mm -hmm. So schools have been trying to figure out how to do this. And Pidiac is with many other places. They decided that many women there were interested in what's called competitive tumbling and cheer, which is a combination of traditional cheerleading with a lot of gymnastics. So the court was asked to decide whether that is a sport. (laughs) Just the fact that the court has to make a decision like that. Right, yeah. Greg Easterbrook, who is both a political and a sports commentator, I don't know if he's still affiliated with Brookings, but he was for a long time, said, whether competitive tumbling and cheer is a sport is not a major civil rights issue. But once you get into this counting up by gender, it's really hard to know how you don't try to figure out what is a sport and what is not. Mm -hmm. The important takeaway there, I think, is that one of the features of regulation of athletics is that it focuses so heavily on varsity sports. I think that the interest that Title IX has generated among girls and women in sports is terrific, but I think where they took a wrong term was to say, we're going to count up the number of varsity sports. Because that affects very, very few people. It's extremely expensive. And it has meant that we have pumped more money into varsity sports for a small number of people rather than looking at athletic opportunities that cross the spectrum from intramural to recreational to varsity. And one thing I will say, I'm critical of the Obama administration in many parts of this book. But one thing I think they did that was really great was to put more emphasis on 
elementary schools and high schools because the imbalance in opportunities for girls and boys, I think, is quite stark in many parts of the country. And that's where I think this could do a lot of good. And in the case of Harvard Law, we see both race and gender and violence being brought together under the question of Title IX. This is a case in which you have accusations of sexual assault. In this case, the charge is brought by a black woman against a black man. That, as in many of these cases, exactly what happened is murky. The man was disciplined by the law school, but allowed to come back after, I think, two years. And the woman who raised the allegation thought that this was far too little. One of the things that's interesting about Harvard Law School in particular and law schools in general is that while most law professors are clearly on the liberal side of the political spectrum, some of the harshest criticism of these rules has come from law professors who are concerned about due process. And I think the most interesting and eloquent statement of the criticism of lack of due process in many schools has come from four eminent women law professors at Harvard who said that, and I think this is a key point, you don't have to give up due process protections to protect people against sexual assault. And how we put those two things together is really crucial. And the third case was a school district in Illinois and pointedly deals with the bathroom issue. Right. Right. Yeah, that was really one of the opening salvos of the bathroom wars uh, later erupted in North Carolina. The issue here is not whether transgender students deserve an education, whether they have that basic right. The answer clearly is yes. The only question is what sex-segregated facilities will be allocated to them. And the Office for Civil Rights said in a 2016 Dear Colleague letter, one of these unilateral declarations, that you have to respect the gender identity of the student in these matters, whether it be a use of bathrooms or shower and locker rooms or dorm rooms assigning people to roommates or sports teams, so that if a person who was born male and has male anatomy identifies as female, they have to be treated as female in every aspect of education. And this raised issues about privacy. It raises issues about how do you figure out who gets to be on a male or female sports team. So all of these issues are coming out now. The difficulty the Office for Civil Rights had was that the law clearly allows sex segregation of some facilities. Hmm. And what the argument for transgender rights is, is that when the law says sex, it should be interpreted to mean gender identity. But, of course, the term gender identity was created to distinguish itself from sex as the term is usually used. So it's quite a legal stretch. The Trump administration has, of course, walked into this issue of Title IX controversies and Education Secretary Betsy DeVos has been at the forefront of that. What is your assessment of how she is approaching the issues we've been discussing? This is an issue that I feel torn on because Mm -hmm. on the one hand, I do think that many things need to be changed. I think that the withdrawal of the Dear Colleague letters on transgender rights and on sexual assault were proper. I can't think of a worse administration to symbolize these changes. I have not been impressed by Secretary DeVos's command of many of these issues. Mm -hmm. I have been impressed by the choice to be Assistant Secretary for Civil Rights if he is ever 
confirmed, which is Ken Marcus, who's an experienced and thoughtful person. But I don't know if the Senate will ever confirm his nomination. Mm -hmm. But revising these regulations is going to be the proof of the pudding. And so far, they haven't been able to do that. They promised that the era of rule by letter of Dear Colleague Letter is over, and they were going to do things through the proper administrative procedure. I applaud that. We're still waiting for even the proposal of the rulemaking mm-hmm. that was promised in September. So I think the jury is very much still out on what direction this administration is going to go. I want to end with a warning you deliver in the book. The evolution of Title IX raises fundamental questions about control, accountability, and legitimacy within a constitutional democracy. What are those fundamental questions and how do we address them? I think the fundamental question is when you are going to set federal rules that establish rules of conduct for every elementary school, every high school, virtually every college and university in the country, who should have that power? Now, we'd like to say that Congress is the one that should do that. I would be delighted if Congress stepped up and was much more explicit on these things. I'm not holding my breath. Hmm. Even when Congress was not in the state of gridlock it is now, back in the 70s and 80s, they didn't say very much at all about how Title IX should be interpreted. Given that, what's really important is much more transparency, starting with the administrative process, but I think also with the courts. Because right now, the courts have basically said, well, we'll defer to agencies when we like the result, and when we don't, we'll give our own interpretations. I think a little more respect for statutory texts would be useful. Mm -hmm. And the combination of more administrative process and a little bit more humility by the courts, I think, would do a great deal to restore constitutional balance. Shep, thank you for coming by today to talk about your new book with Brookings Press, The Transformation of Title IX. Well, thank you very much for having me. You can learn more about the book, The Transformation of Title IX, on our website, brookings.edu. Thanks to audio engineer and producer Gaston Ribeiro, with assistance from Mark Holscher, to producers Brennan Hoban and Chris McKenna, to Bill Finan, who does the book interviews, and to Jessica Pavone and Eric Abalahin for design and web support. And finally, thanks to Camila Ramirez and David Nassar for their guidance and support. By the way, David is moving on from Brookings after this week. Five years ago, he asked, should we have a podcast? And thus was born the Brookings Cafeteria. So, David, thank you especially for all that you've done to make this podcast a success, and thank you for supporting me in this podcasting journey. My best to you. The Brookings Cafeteria is brought to you by the Brookings Podcast Network, where you can also subscribe to Intersections, 5 on 45, and our events podcasts. Email your questions and comments to me at bcp at brookings.edu. If you have a question for a scholar, Include an audio file, and I'll play it and the answer on the air. Follow us on Twitter, at Policy Podcasts. You can subscribe to the Brookings Cafeteria on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get podcasts, and listen to it in all the usual places. If you go to Apple Podcasts, please rate and review the show. Visit us online at brookings.edu. Until next time, I'm Fred Dews.